today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the Huawei CFO back in court in uh, British Columbia. Lawyers seeking to add more evidence uh, contesting the U.S. extradition case. And to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute and a professor of political science, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Give us a bit of an update here, Gordon. Where are we with this case? Uh, are we actually into the extradition point, uh, point of this, or are we still in preliminary stuff? I think we're still, we could say that, uh, you know, this two years in, we're still in the preliminary. We're getting closer to the main, the main, the main game. Uh, she's got a, as in Meng Wanzhou, has got a first-rate legal team. I have the impression they're sort of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what might stick. A judge had ruled out evidence provided by other Huawei employees, but still in play are the question of the political, alleged political interference by comments by President Trump um, uh, not long after her detention. There's issues of um, procedure uh, that deal with a, their alleged, her lawyers alleged abuse of, of procedure in her being questioned, without her rights being read, seizure of her documents, that sort of thing. And also um, uh, concerns about uh, um, the um, consular uh, authorities, uh, whether we were operating the correct, Canada's operating the correct authorities, and whether there's even a case to be made, given that the case doesn't directly involve Canada, only indirectly. So a lot of theories. Um, we'll see what Judge Holmes says, but we're still a ways away. Is there anything there that, stri- uh, that stands out for you as something that could get this thrown out? The one which, I mean, just to be clear, I'm not an extradition lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, I'm a political guy um, in terms of relationship with China. My view, the one that strikes me as having potential would be the question of seizure of her um, devices and passwords uh, before she had been uh, formally arrested. I wonder about that. It'll be a question of CBSA authority to do so. Uh, But... This is in the hands of Justice Holmes, and like a good judge, she keeps her cards close to her chest until she rules, as she had on she has on a couple of occasions now rejected arguments from uh, Meng Wanzhou's lawyers. Uh, but we will see, and they, this is going to drag on at least into May. Um, then potentially appeals. I'm not sure that the Crown would appeal if the judge dismisses the case, but I can guarantee, I think, that the Meng's lawyers would appeal rather than have her whisked away to the United States. And you mentioned, uh, and we remember what Donald Trump said way back when, uh, how much of a factor does that play into this uh, now? Uh, the fact that he's not the president anymore, does that play, does that factor into this in any way? Well, the Crown, if he was still president, the Crown would have to refute that and say, well, just off the cuff remark, no significance. But now since he's out, they say the issue is moot. It doesn't have any application because he's no longer president. So that's been their response. We'll see what Justice Holmes thinks about this. Um, so far, in the, on the secondary issues that have come before her, um, she's ruled that the, um, the issues did not have bearing. Yes, it's, it's still a crime in Canada. It's a question of fraud. Um, no, um, the, um, individual arguments put forward don't yet have standing or don't have standing we'll see she's got three or four of them now before her before we go to the actual extradition hearing per se um 
And one, again, that seems to me that might work would be the seizure of the devices, etc. Her charter rights were um, broached. That would be the argument. Charter rights apply to anybody in Canada. You don't have to be a citizen or Canadian. Uh, we'll see what interpretation she takes of that. She'll have that evidence. She has that evidence before. More will be heard this week. And then we drift on into the principal hearing in May. Does the U.S. still have interest in seeing this all the way through and bringing her down there? I think there's a. Div- I suspect that there's a division of opinion. On Thursday, Blinken, the Secretary of State, and the National Security Advisor Sullivan meet with their Chinese counterparts in Alaska. This will be, of course, for us, this is our two Michaels are number one on the list, right? And they are yeah. without a doubt linked to Meng Wanzhou's case. For the Americans trying to be fair, I think they really do care. The president said, complained about the using hostages as bargaining chips. But the U.S. has got a lot of fish to fry with China. This would be one of a dozen issues, not number one, I'm sure. Um, I think in the administration, there is a genuine negative sentiment towards China, bipartisan, both parties, uh, GOP and the Democrats. But I don't think this is front and center. One advantage for the Americans, I think, is that this really keeps the relationship with China frozen for Canada, and they want to rally their allies into a common front to withstand Chinese pressure. So I suspect they won't want to give this up easily. On the other hand, um, by dropping the suit, they avoid a headache for themselves, because if she is extradited, the Chinese will be yet again furious with the Americans in that case, and with us allowing her to go. But with the Americans for putting her on trial, it would be a hugely high-profile trial to have her in detention, not just probably under house arrest, but actually in a jail. Uh, that would be a huge issue for the Chinese. So I wouldn't rule out that the Americans must, uh, uh, go away, but I would suspect they'd be looking for some benefit in return. Okay, we dropped the extradition request for, for Hmong. What can you do for us? Mm. Um, I, I'm not saying that's going to be a front and center on Thursday, but down the road, who knows? If this does go through and she ends up being extradited, is this oh, is this warranted? Is the issue involved, is this warranted or is this overplaying one's hand? Well, considering considering the, the prestige of this of this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I will confess that in other cases with another Chinese state-owned enterprise, what was done was a huge fine. In other words, it became a civil affair. I think the fine was about a billion dollars U.S., huge fine, for breach of U.S. sanctions on Iran. And that, if that had been the case with Huawei, I don't think it would have gone beyond the business pages. I think the U.S. and perhaps Canada may not have realized quite the prestige that the daughter of the founder of Huawei, China's flagship company abroad, has. And I also think they've overplayed their hand in season of two Michaels. I think that the U.S. may not have understood how important that was. I think China may not have understood uh, how high-profile seizing two innocent Canadians was and how deeply that would anger Canadians. So I think there's been a, some underappreciation um, around to be shared. Uh, can you see the U.S. saying, all right, we'll drop all of this, you've got to return the two Michaels? That would be... To me, a great, uh, well, that would be an outcome which I think would salute, because to me, number one is to get the two Michaels, one of whom I met when I was in government service, Michael Kovrig. That, to me, would be a good thing, because they're in far different, harsher conditions. 
I know some might say that, well, they'll just seize more Canadians next time. But I would note that I don't think this has worked out that well for the Chinese. Uh, they could have taken, we got maybe 50,000 living in Canadian citizens yep. living in China, another 300,000 in Hong Kong. They could have replicated this many, many times over. I think they were taken aback by our reaction. I don't think they would want to do this in a hurry. Of course, no guarantees. So, yes, it's a possibility that that would be, that might well be the deal. But I would suspect to save face, Chinese are big about face, that they would delay. In other words, um, the U.S. drops the extradition treaty, the the Michaels will be freed, but they would Later want on. there to be a time frame yeah. Um, yeah. just to show to try and prove for their people, at least, that this what the two cases weren't linked. We know they Not are, related, but yeah. I would think it wouldn't be Hmong out today, two Michaels out tomorrow. I mean, I right. would think it could be a few weeks or even a couple months. But compared to the charges they're under, um, if it does go to trial, they can have, in theory, the charges they have could have the death penalty, or at least a very long sentence, more likely a long sentence. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, talking about uh, the Huawei CFO back in court and where that leaves the two Michaels. Gordon, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, talking uh, about the Rogers Shaw merger, uh, still pending approval. Uh, but obviously, these are two uh, giant family run companies, uh, telecom companies that are uh, coming together, East meets West, so to speak. Let's bring in Moshe Lander, senior economist, so, sorry, senior economics lecturer with Concordia University, and is with us now. Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Anytime. Glad to talk to you again. So uh, the first question everybody wants to know is, is this going to cost us more? Will we see prices go up as a result of this? Oh, I'm sure it will. It's just a matter of when. And it really depends on kind of what service you're using, too. So, you know, Western and, and yet at the end of the day, at the end of the day, too, Moshe, uh, I guess it's safe to say that they're all going to go up anyway. I guess that's pretty obvious. Absolutely. But but I guess consumers want to know if this is an advantage for them. No, no. Um, Rogers is weak in Western Canada. Shaw is very strong in Western Canada. So creating a Rogers-Shaw behemoth is going to be good for that platform and that it gives it kind of a Canadian-wide uh, reach to now go head-to-head with Bell. Conceivably, that could create competition. But the fact is there's one less competitor in the marketplace, and that's usually going to lead to more kind of market concentration, which usually leads to higher prices. So, you know, I, I think some of the words that we heard in the last 24 hours, which was like promises to Shaw customers that don't worry about your prices for the next 24 to 48 months, is indicative that they do have plans to raise their prices. Otherwise, why do they need to issue that reassurance? Uh, how much does this, from a business perspective, have to do with 5G? We know we're on the cusp of, of getting there. We've heard uh, the ex- exorbitant amount of money it's going to cost to, to go across the country with 5G. Uh, obviously, uh, the, a very precarious situation with China and Huawei, uh, which may make it even more expensive. Is this needed for 5G? It is, but it's also a convenient cover to justify, right? So um, would 5G be able to exist in this country without that merger? Yeah. Would it take maybe a little bit longer? Yeah. Is this the type of thing, though, that, oh, it's it's absolutely necessary? No, that's not the case at all. And so I, I think there's a little bit here that there's some validity to it, but I also think that it's convenient cover to justify that this is the perfect time to make the merger 
because it's an easy sell that, yes, this is a 5G issue and the issues you cited with Huawei and whatnot are, are convenient enough that Canadians would be willing to tolerate it, especially when we're kind of distracted these days with other things in our lives. So is this merger a good idea then? No. Um, if you told me that the Canadian government were really prepared to make a competitive marketplace for uh, cell phones and for Internet, if they were willing to open the border to Verizon and T-Mobile and all of those things that we salivate at watching on U.S. commercials, like why can't we have that here in Canada, then yeah, this merger is perfectly fine because the competition would come from the, the U.S. and international behemoths that would come into this country and quickly flatten out pricing plans in a way that would uh, eliminate inefficient competitors. But the fact is that the Canadian government has no appetite to subject Rogers and Bell to that competition. And so it's merely just creating more market concentration. It's kind of returning us to the battle days of, uh, you know, sectors in Canada that were just highly, highly concentrated around two, three firms. Uh, and all of us going back 30, 40 years, if not further, will remember uh, the Canada of the 1980s and 1990s was a very different place than what we see now. Uh, this is a step backward, not forward. So would it be better just to open up the market, the Canadian market? Uh, obviously, any new companies that come in, uh, probably the smaller ones get, get eventually eaten up by the big ones anyway. So is the answer here to open up this to the United States, uh, let the U.S. companies come in and chips fall where they may? Yeah, it's a little bit of rethinking to the way that the markets work, right? So one of the problems that the Canadian cell phone companies have gotten themselves into is that they were building essentially their own towers and then running distribution along their own towers, right? If you take those towers and you turn those almost into like a public utility, the same way that wires for running electricity is like a public utility, then what you can do is you can genuinely open up to competition as to who's going to transmit along those towers, right? So it's kind of breaking apart uh, the competitive aspect that those towers are not something that's naturally conducive to competition because it's such a high fixed cost. And Canada is such a geographically challenging uh, country to work with. It's not small. It's not highly concentrated. We don't all live within the same small territory. So, you know, if the Canadian government even wanted to jump in and say, look, we'll even take that over as like a public utility. Uh, and then we'll let you guys compete viciously for who can deliver the packets over those towers in the most efficient, cost-worthy sort of way. Hey, that's fine, too. But, um, you know, I, I just don't see that this government has the appetite to take on that level of um, public convincing. And so I, I, I can wish all I want that the Americans would come this way. I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Uh, obviously, we've heard 5G is going to be very, very expensive. Is that something that the taxpayers would want to incur? Well, it's it's a high upfront fixed cost, right? So the, the ability to deliver the 5G is the cost. Once it once that infrastructure is in place, right, the, the marginal cost of that delivery is going to be very low. So it's one of those things that's inherent within Internet and cell delivery is that the fixed costs up front are really where the, the costs are born. The marginal cost of an extra user is very, very low. If you control the distribution in that infrastructure, that's what's effectively keeping out the, the competition. And so, you know, if the government wanted to jump in and say, look, this is going to cost us whatever number of billions of dollars to take that on in the form of higher taxes, but you, the consumer, are going to claw it back in that you're not going to have unlimited data for $15 a month those cost savings will kind of balance themselves out over three to five years in a way that, okay, consumers aren't going to be paying any more than what they're paying now. It's just going to be where they're paying that and how they're going to be paying that. And it's going to show that even if we're paying the same amount, we have much 
more attractive plans in the way that we can utilize 5G on our phones, tablets, or other devices. So should the government take over the infrastructure and equip us with 5G, or do we open up the borders and and let foreign uh, companies come in, uh, the American companies come in? So that's it. You, you, you presented it as an or. It's not or. If you want it's to I, it as an and, right. I'm okay with that, right? Right. But that's exactly it. If it's presented as an or, no. Should the government take this over to provide 5G while keeping the Americans out? No. Um, if, if Rogers and TELUS and Shaw and uh, Bell want to bash each other over the head to do it, well, um, they're, they're going to have to because we as consumers want it. But we're also going to be paying in the three figures, if not higher, for our cell, internet, TV, and all of our um, digital packages in a way that's not good for us as a consumer. Eliminating competition isn't going to make that any better. Um, but if the Canadian government wants to come up with a grand plan that involves them taking over the provision of the utility infrastructure, but letting the firms compete for how to deliver over that infrastructure, uh, then, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not an either-or. It should be an and situation. Where does this leave uh, Huawei in Canada? Obviously, Five Eyes don't want anything to do with their uh, 5G network. Um, Rogers and, and TELUS and the rest have decided to go on their own anyway, even without uh, the government saying, no, we, we can't use it. Where does this leave Huawei? Um, in a very confused sort of state, because Canada, of course, brings the added problem of the two Michaels. And so, yeah. you, you know, where Huawei can try and deal with the American government and the new Biden administration and try and smooth things over, uh, you know, the, the American government, first of all, is much, much larger uh, than, than Canada's. And uh, we're not in the same sort of position of strength uh, because we have two of our nationals sitting in a prison that... Uh, are on trumped-up charges. So, you know, the, the the role of what we do with Huawei, if we try and take a hard line, this could make it harder for uh, our nationals that are already over there. It could make it much harder for Canada to do business with China going forward because they're in a position where they can bully Canadian companies. Um, so I, I think kind of the Huawei decision is going to be kicked even further down the road than whether to block this merger or allow it through. At the end of the day, will uh, the Prime Minister's office just let uh, private industry sort this out as opposed to even making a decision, therefore making it political? Because it appears yeah. they're, all, they're all doing their own thing without them anyway. Yeah, and so I, I think that unless there's a strong, compelling case, right, it, it's kind of where's the burden of proof, right? So is it that we won't allow a merger until you provide overwhelming evidence that this is good for consumers, or is that we'll allow the merger until you provide us overwhelming evidence that it's bad? I think that's kind of the current state of where we are right now in terms of competition in this country. But if you go back 30 years, you know, you, you'll remember that the, the big six banks tried to merge their way down to big four, and that was blocked by Paul Martin and uh, the Chrétien liberal government at the time on competition grounds. So, you know, every once in a while, there is that jumping in saying, wait, I don't think this is a good move. And I guess in terms of like for like, you know, big six banks dominate Canada in the way that the big four providers dominate uh, digital delivery. Um, you could make that grounds that going from four to three is bad news, especially if Bell decides that now that they really face genuine competition from a uh, merged Roger Shaw, that they're going to make a play for TELUS. Um, I, I don't think that this government has the necessary majority or credentials at this point to be able to block that. And I'm not sure that if we're facing a spring election that they'd want to turn this into an issue. So they might just kind of let it go through merely on the grounds of why spend political capital on something that, uh, while they've made a promise to try and keep Internet prices under control, 
the fact is that blocking this merger isn't going to stop that. And so do you think this will be approved by officials by uh, in Canada? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't see that there's that compelling of a case. Well, while it's clear that it will lead to higher prices, the fact is it's going to lead to higher prices with or without that merger because of the right. uh, need to try and recover the huge upfront cost of 5G infrastructure. So, you know, being able to tease out that this is going to make a difference of $5, $10 that way, uh, and then to try and block what's otherwise a sound merger, and a bunch of shareholders are agreeing to this, uh, I don't think that there's the political will there to, to do anything to stop this. So um, it, it's just an issue of whether they want to uh, openly and vocally support it or merely just kind of passively let it slide through. That, that's really the only the issue that we have to see at this point. Moshe Lander has been with us, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University, talking about the Rogers-Shaw uh, merger and how that will change uh, the landscape in Canada. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. You as well. Talk to you soon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.